glory to your name, oh Lord, for your name is great and greatly to be praised. I give glory to your name, oh Lord. I feel like I should order another coffee. That's all right. See this lady and she serves me coffee. It's good. Well, um, just to uh, uh, fill you in a bit, that uh, it's a great pleasure to have Josh. You were an answer to prayer, Josh. Um, I don't know whether you appreciate that for the chapel. Uh, the opportunities in the school at Loash, the one at the top of Carlane, is incredible. Absolutely incredible. The sad news is that the headmaster is leaving in the summer. So there's one major prayer that you keep praying that that school will stay wide open. Um, it's good to see Nigel. Nigel was great uh, with um, supporting us too because it was not the Gideon norm to put 300 Bibles into the school, to the junior school. And they went across rows, pray for those Bibles um, as they do there. But this initiative, the latest one with Scripture Union, uh, is incredible. Scripture Union had a major change of policy uh, a few years ago, and um, they did a census, I think it was in 2016, to discover that 95% of children in the UK are unchurched. Now, you've only got to think a bit deeper what that really means. One little girl went to church, her mother forced her to church, she came out weeping, her mother said, what's the matter, what's the matter? She said, they swear in that church, and they keep on swearing. And the swear word was Jesus. That was the only um, connection she had with that word. It was a swear word. So the 95% rule that's hitting Britain is phenomenal. If I tell you that in, um, across the city... Uh, in Thorpe Edge, I understand that Stonewall are already in that school. And Stonewall, if you don't know, are the gay, lesbians, and all sorts of society actually feeding into the school. And they've got a banner, I'm told, that says Stonewall are here. And they're feeding opposition. They're asking children in schools across Britain, particularly in the South, to donate something of their spending money to the cause. That's the kind of um, forces that are at leash, unleashed in, in, in our nation. So please, please, we are so, so privileged with this school. And it's like almost, I don't know whether Josh would agree with this, it's almost like taking Sunday school into school, isn't it? Uh, but it's got a modern connection. It's got IT, iPads, and all the modern connections. But it's the same thing. The core message is the same. So please, please pray for us. That would be great. Right, okay. It's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Philip did invite me, and he said, before you say yes, I want to tell you the passage. And there it was. He'd lit the blue touch paper and left it fizzing. And then I found out, only a few days ago, he wasn't going to be here anyway. So, uh, okay. Let's turn. I understand you're journeying through James, and um, I want to... What do you tell a Bible-believing church that really um, love the Lord and worship and um, 
What do you tell them new about this incredible passage? Well, it's God's living word, and it's um, a word I feel for us as individuals, not just for you. When I was writing this, I was realized the finger was pointing at me. I'm serious, because I think this is one of the biggest challenges of our age. Let's look at James chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, and uh, verses 14 to the end. And I want to focus on a one nub of this particular gospel. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about this physical needs, and what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith. So faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the privilege that we have a living word. Thank you that it is an open book to each and every one of us. And thank you for the particularly for the believers in this church whose dependency on this is great, whose love of it is superb, and they feed upon your word. We ask you, Lord, that you will help us tonight to hear what you have to say to us, each and every one of us. Father, touch the buttons that really need pressing in each of our lives in that miraculous way to meet all the needs of all of us right here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Peter Maiden, as some of you know, um, is, was International Director of Operation Mobilization. He went round the world. He saw cultures all over the place. He came here to Bradford Keswick, if you remember, a few years ago. And I, I remember one thing that stuck with me as we talked and, and as he preached, 
And he, he asked the question. We did actually have a Monday morning bacon butty with him and invited the leaders from around the city to come. And the one thing he said, he said, do you realize what the biggest issue is for Christianity in the 21st century across the world? And he was a man who saw the declining church in the West and saw the, some of the miraculous things that were going across the east of our planet. One was declining, one was absolutely blossoming. And I, I asked him the question to clarify. I said, do you really mean here and there, east and west? He said, yes. He says, bigger problem over there is it is here. And the problem was discipleship. The failure of the church or the failure of the individuals in the church um, to walk the talk, to become what Christ intended to our day and generation. I was interested, too, to um, read some of the life story of, of Billy Graham. And uh, the interviewer was going through all sorts of things and asking him all the obvious things, a bit like Parkinson and, and, and all those kind of questions. But he came to the, the big issue. What were the problems? And what were the biggest issues? What maybe were even the biggest regrets in his life? And Billy Graham said this. He said that one of the major regrets he had in his Christian life was he didn't spend more time on his own personal relationship with the Lord. It's incredible. Not saying he didn't have a personal relationship or spent time. He was saying he regretted he didn't spend more. Another thing that Billy Graham said was this. He said, one of my great regrets is that I've not studied enough. I wish I had studied more and preached less on the word. People have pressurized me into speaking to groups when I should have been studying and preparing. The question is, when I was doing that, I was thinking this. What is your discipleship really like? I don't mean what other people think of it. I don't mean what your nearest and dearest thinks of it. I mean in that really deep recesses of, of your heart. What are the issues in your relationship with the Lord that need addressing and tackling? What would your regrets be? Would you be as honest as these men, as Billy Graham? How much, what are you like on your knees before the Lord every day? I was reading about one man of God, and he was saying this, yeah, I have a quiet time. He said, and I do it twice a day. Think about that. So much was his, his, his love for the Lord and his, his wanting to serve the Lord that he decided that his relationship could be strengthened by doing it just that. We see the church in decline. Just think logically for a minute. We have the most incredible gospel. It's powerful beyond, it's complete power. It's perfect. So what's our problem? What is the issue? Where are we failing? Where are we not being honest before God? 
So what are the buts? And that's what I want to focus on in, a mi- uh, in these few minutes. What is the buts? What are the buts in our walk, in our talk with the Lord? And let's take stock of where we are. No, I don't mean discuss it. I mean on our knees. Stephen Alford used to say this, go to the cross. Bent knees, wet eyes, and a broken heart. Let's go to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and see what it is that is crucial. And we're going to look at it in a particular part of this passage in James. I feel that this passage in James cuts to the real core of the message of what he was trying to say. And it it contains so much. Martin Luther disliked this book so much, he wanted it removed from the Bible because he thought this book concentrated on one thing, works, not faith. But the core truth is there. Another of, of the students call this the Proverbs of the New Testament. Look at it. You're, you're studying some of it, but there's, there's much more. There's talks about trials and testings, chapter 1. There's talks about wisdom. There's talks about attitudes. There's talks about prayer and practical Christian living. But this particular section that we're looking at tonight is at the core of who we are in faith. It's about our being and our doing about who we are before the Lord, who we are if we were cut in two, who we are at the core, our being and our doing, our depth of faith, faith and works. What is our faith? Let me ask you a question, and I ask myself the question, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Have you asked God about it? Do you keep on asking God about it? And I, I, I'm not saying that, that, that we're all different ages, are we? I'm not saying it for any age group. I'm talking about you, where you are, and how old you are. What does God want of you in the rest of your life? Have you asked Him? What condition of your faith is your faith in? Now let's get the real nub of the problem here about this competition between faith and work. So we get the theologicals out of the way, first of all. Because um, this is why Martin Luther didn't like it, because it concentrated, in his view, too much on works, as if there was a conditional thing attached to faith. Well, it's important to understand, in no way is James saying that our good works earn salvation. Not at all. There's no way that these verses seem to contradict with the Apostle Paul. Saving faith is always a living faith. And a living faith automatically produces good works. It says here in verse 17, if a person claims to have faith and his faith does not issue forth in service towards others, 
then the professed faith is actually dead. Actually, if anybody gets into these arguments, they're, they're talking about real faith and false faith. James is not into that debate. He's trying to tell us something else and something deeper. He said, the works of faith demonstrate the presence of faith. Not that they add to faith or can merit faith. True faith goes beyond mere assent, involves a personal relationship of trust and commitment to God. And such true faith will always show itself in deeds of love and obedience. The Reformers said this, We are justified by faith alone. But justifying faith is never found alone. It's a wonderful phrase because it automatically produces. So this good fruit produces, teaches, demonstrate a real faith. So I want to kind of explore this issue about where we are and hope it encourages you about being and doing. That's what James is really saying. Who are you? What are you in Christ? And um, as a consequence, what are we doing because of that relationship with Christ? Well, very quickly, but to encourage you, a starting point, just one or two scriptures to just uh, show you where we are in God's sight. Well, starting point said... We're unique. Now, don't kind of, that's a word we can spell, that's a word we know, but just dig deeper about what a consequence of that word means. You are unique. You're not only unique in DNA and all those things, you're unique in, in time too. There's 7.5 billion people, I think, on the planet at the moment. How many people have ever been on the planet? Billions and billions and billions, and you're still unique. You are unique. Listen to what it says in Ephesians 2. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us. We could stop there, because that says it all for me. The ESV says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. That, that blows my mind. I hope it makes you f really get excited about what God wants to do with you for the rest of your life. In Psalm 139, you know it well, it says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows right well. Somebody put it like this. I think it's a wonderful phrase. You, you, me, you are an unrepeatable miracle of God. Don't belittle God, what God wants to do in you and through you, because that purpose is so unique and so important. Do you feel the privilege? 
It's in your DNA. It's in every part of your being, the whole of you. You're spiritually programmed. Paul says to the Corinthians, you don't want to fail the test of faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of case, of course, you fail the test. Do you feel the privilege? He goes on to say then in 1 Corinthians, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. And then he adds at the end, which belongs to God. What a privilege. That unique person you are is stretched across. He chose you for now. He not just made you as you are, but he chose when you would breathe those breaths and for whatever purpose. One of the books, I don't know if you've got um, some kind of litmus test or acid test for your Christian faith, a kind of check thing, a barometer, a spiritual health check. Well, I've got one or two. One of them is the book of Colossians. And the reason I keep going back to that one, Andrew knows too well. If you want to know how to pray, look at chapter one. And if, if you really want to think about your prayer life, go to chapter 1 and look at that. If you want to know who Jesus is, test yourself before you read it, but read chapter 1, verse 15 onwards and see how much you forgot who Jesus is. If you want to talk about mission, look at chapter 4. And then it tells you how you should mission and how you should prepare yourself even to preach and teach. But if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. When James is talking about being and doing, here's the being bit. This is what it means to be. And if you notice the phrase that goes right through the New Testament so many times, I think it's the most popular phrase um, in its doctrinal sense in the New Testament is being in Christ. That's the being bit that James was on about. In Christ. To lose your identity. Somebody put it like this. When you were born, you were a unique person with your own root life. When you became a Christian and you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were grafted, you were severed from the old root life and grafted into the root life of Christ himself. The song was saying there about being dead. You, as you were born, are dead if you believe in Jesus Christ. That's what born again really means. Because you're not in your old system of root life, you're in Christ. You know, John in John, when he talks about abiding, that's why the crucial bit, that's why our private devotions and our quiet life are so absolutely crucial. Being is our relationship with him. That's what James was really saying. That's what was faith. That was the walk of faith. And he says here in this his chapter, let me just 
um, look at it um, with you. Look what he says in chapter 2 and verse 6. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted, built up, strengthened, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given the fullness in Christ. So you've got two pluses to be positive tonight. You're not only unique as a born-again Christian, you have the fullness of Christ. What's our problem? And somewhere in the quietness of, of our own meditation, we have to ask, Lord, what, what have you still to do in me? And have this living faith Verse 9 and 10, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. We could spend a long time just on that verse. Just one aside, I don't know what you're struggling with at the moment, I hope you're not, but if you are, I want you to remember that end of that verse in, in, in verse 10. Who is, you have been given the fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. That's the privilege that we have in Christ. I was praying with something this morning in church. And they're broken. They're a Christian, but they're broken. They're being smashed around. But that person was hanging on. She had that peace like a river. And she was embattled from every side. Because she knew she was in Christ. And Christ had that authority over her. That's faith. Can you see what James is saying? We can talk about all these other things in James, but the root thing is, what is your faith? What needs to be done? How do we need to draw on that resource? How do we need to be refreshed and renewed on our knees? Bent knees, wet eyes, and a broken heart, crying out for God, standing on the promises and claiming his authority. Well, we could spend a lot more on that. But that's what I think James, I'm certain James meant, on being, being. He meant being in Christ. Faith and works. A, first, a, a faith that is locked into this relationship with Christ himself. But what he was saying was then, that automatically, if we have that relationship it will spill over into doing. Jesus spoke about it. We haven't time 
um, uh, to look at it in detail, but it isn't a question of serving God because I must do. Do you get the thing? It's because I want to. Because of this relationship and this privilege that I have in Christ. Mark Twain, you probably don't know whether you know much of it. He once said this. He said, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. That's what he said. I don't know. But that's not what the Bible says. Another incredible truth about this is, is found all over the world. Basically, James was saying, do you realize that God created you to work? Work is not a result of the fall. It was part of God's creation order. He designed man to take responsibility for and to do his creation. Genesis 2. Exodus 20. Hebrews 4. When man thinks of work and when, when Christians think of work, we, th we probably think of our professional or our monetary earning thing. God's definition of work in the Hebrew meant not only the physical, it meant the mental and the spiritual. So this being and this doing take on a new perspective. It means all of me in Christ, that's who I am, that's who I am, the being bit. But the doing bit is all of me doing his will for his glory to minister to our day and generation in different ways. Not just using words, by the way. It can be much more than that and much more powerful than that. So the Father gives us tasks to accomplish. That's why I asked a question earlier on. What do you think God wants you to do with the rest of your life? By the way, there is a warning in Matthew 25 that to refuse that work is unacceptable to God. Do you remember the parable of the talents? To spurn it, not to seek it. And the other issue here, notice the word keeps coming out. It's good works. What does he mean by good works? It <coughs> means for his plan and purposes. Somebody once said that our discipleship is a work of God, that God wants to work in us, that we have to cooperate with us, to shape us, and to take us into what he wants us to be. God has appointed us in time. God has appointed us in tasks for his honor and his glory. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 13 said, we are caused to please God in our doing. 1 Corinthians 3 says, we will be tested and we're rewarded by God in a faithfulness of doing. 
But these two things really boil, boil down to two things. In our doing and in our actions, it's not anything. It's to do God's will for your life. To serve the day and generation that we've called to be in. John 14, and it kind of um, wrestled with this um, verses. Jesus was talking about work. Do you remember what he said in John 14? You will do an even greater work than me. Now that means a lot of things. We won't get into that debate tonight. If you want to talk about it, stay behind what, what you think it means. But one thing it does mean is that you'll have more time. He had three years. There'll be more opportunity to reach the rest of the world. But God will use the uniqueness that he's given you to minister his worth. I used to think, um, you know the Lord's Prayer, and do you remember um, in the Gospels, there's two versions of it, and one Gospel um, cuts the ending off. And I, I really wondered, some people believe it was a, an add-on later. Do you remember what it is? For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever, amen. When I was teaching, I, I used to teach people about being in God's will and doing God's will, and that's not easy. And it's back to our personal, private life. But then I realized there was something else. You see, in all our being and in all our doing, it's for the glory of God. Remember the Lord's Prayer again? For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Being in him is being in his will. If we're in his will and our faith expands, our doing will take a new dimension because it's in his will and with his enabling. But the ultimate privilege is it will be for his glory in you and through you. All of you, body, soul and mind faith and works the core of the gospel throughout the gospel working in you to be the now you know one of the um, incredible conclusions in all this is God wants to use you and all of you in your now and in this day and generation. And for that end, you were chosen. Let's pray. Father, I just pray tonight that we will in the privacy of our own lives, just digest all these truths and translate them into 
something new. You'll speak into the deepest recesses of our own hearts. And Lord, may you be uplifted, honored, and glorified in and through all your people for your namesake and for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.